Well, hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Harbor Teaching Podcast. We hope that the messages you will hear are both uplifting and challenging. And now, welcome to the Harbor. Thanks so much for uh, coming back, and uh, I hope that we can continue to grow and learn uh, tonight. I don't know if you've ever heard of the name G.K. Chesterton. He was a great writer uh, in the 1800s, and he wrote, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And I think that we often get that, especially in America, that's kind of our mentality, is that when things get difficult, we tend to abandon. We tend to move on. We tend to complain. We tend to ask God why, right? Um, I think we fall into this trap because we live in America that um, Christianity is relatively easy. I mean, there's not a lot of persecution that we face, right? I don't know that any of us have ever persecuted to the point of blood or that we've, we have been chastised too much. There's not a lot of persecution. Um, and too often, I think we can e- easily think that, man, Jesus should just make my life comfortable. If anything, I'm adding Jesus to my life. And Jesus should, should exist really to make sure that my life is going to work out as the way that I want it, to find a good spouse, to have great kids, to go on great vacations, to retire well, to have the American dream. That's not the dream that God paints in Scripture. When we think about the, the path that God has on us, he, for us, he uses a lot of analogies that you don't find that, rec- that kind of matches up with a comfortable life. He says that our life is going to be a little bit like a war and that we need to train like a soldier. That it's going to be a lot of work, we need to live like a farmer. Um, that it's like a race, we need to train like an athlete. And so when we come to Hebrews 12, we, we see this same metaphor. We see, see this idea that life is like one endurance race. And if we're going to finish well, we need to focus on Jesus. And as I said last week, that's not always easy. Did any of you guys, anybody, do we have any rowers in here? Anybody grow up rowing? You know, like the long skinny boats? I got a picture of one of those if you don't know what that is. I did this in high school. This was my sport. I, I was like, at freshman year in high school, I was 6'2". I weighed like a buck 30. So let's just say that the football coach never came asking me to be on his team. But the crew coach, because if you're rowing, you want skinny guys that are tall or skinny gals that are tall. That's what you want. And so I rowed in the position, as you see up there, what's called the stroke, which is really at the front of the boat or really you're rowing backwards. So you're at the back of the boat, but you're at the front because you're the first guy rowing. You're sitting close enough to the coxswain. The coxswain is a small guy uh, who weighs really nothing, as little as possible. He steers the boat. I'm sitting close enough to him to know what he had for breakfast that morning. That's my job. My job was two things, to listen to his orders. He's about to tell me something to do and, um, and basically set the pace for the boat. Everybody, the way that a, a great boat, and if you see these in the Olympics, that's the only time ever, anybody ever watches crew uh, is in the Olympics because it's a really boring sport to watch because it's like a 2,000-meter race. Everybody's down at the finish line. Somebody, you know, says start, and you, like, look down and go, are they going? Are they, have they left yet? And typically, one boat's a lot faster than the other. So it's like one boat finishes, and then there's, like, a, you know, 30 seconds later, another boat. And so it's like, yay. It's, it's not really that exciting at all. But I really loved it. It was a great experience to row in a boat, to all eight going together. And the key to rowing, and this is what they tell you, the, the one cardinal sin of rowing is they say you cannot let your eyes look out of the boat. That if you're stroke, you're staring right at the coxswain. You're looking straight ahead. The seven guy right behind me, he's boring. If his eyes were lasers, he's boring a hole in the back of my head all the way down. Because the minute that you look out of the boat, you lose power. As you're pushing with your legs, you're focused your head. The the minute your head moves this way or that way, you lose power. Your energy goes out. You lose steam. It's just, it's a proven fact. My last race that I was in was I was in the freshman eight. We came up, we had had won a lot of races up until that time, but we were up against a lot of boats that we hadn't raced before. And we had come down to it. There was two two boats that were with us. There was a four-boat race. Um, and as we started racing, the two boats that were over here to the side were clearly better than us. They were a little bit bigger guys. I don't know how they stacked the boat for that race, but they were coming down. They were, a little, they were, they were ahead of us. Our, cox, our coxswain was yelling at us. He was saying things like power 10 on two, which is basically 10 strokes as hard as you can, sprint. And as we're getting closer and closer to the finish line, we got a shot. I can tell it. I can see it in the, in, in the coxswain's eyes. He's like, I think we can, we can get closer. We can get closer. But we were in third place. The other boat... We didn't even think about them. They were in fourth. They, they were kind of out of the picture. And as we get closer, we hear a, cl- a loud sound that was a clash of oars. The two boats that were ahead, 
they came too close together and their oars locked. And it was just a loud sound. And guess what everybody in our boat did? We looked at the sound. And immediately the coxswain shouted, eyes in the boat! And then we crossed the finish line. We came in second by 0.05 seconds to the boat that was in fourth place. They kept their eyes in the boat, finished, crossed ahead of us. That little bit of steam that we lost in looking out of the boat, that lost us the race. Just because we didn't look ahead. We would have won. So the author of Hebrews is saying, I want you to intently fix your eyes on Jesus. This is a race. This is not a joke. This is an endurance run. Life is serious. And there is a goal. There is, an, there is a desire. Jesus did not die on the cross so that we could live a comfortable life and go to church. Jesus died on the cross so that you and I would make an impact in this world for his kingdom. And if we're gonna do that, it means we fix our eyes. Fix our eyes. That's not always easy to do. Last week I talked about how more often than not, I'm like Doug in the movie Up. And my eyes are continually darting at squirrels left and right. And some of the ones that I talked about last week, I talked about two directions that I'm tempted to look. I had a picture of Doug. You up there? Let's see. Let's see. There he is right there. Just to, just to remind ourselves of happy Doug, always looking at squirrels. Same thing with me. I have some distractions in my life, and I talked about two of them, those two directions that I'm tempted to look. First, I'm, I'm tempted to look back and rehearse my failures, my sins, my mishaps, whether it was stuff that I've done in my life or stuff that has been done to me. Uh, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 talks about how if we're going to run this race, we've got to lay aside the weights, the things that weigh us down. And too often in our life, many times, we spend way too much real estate in our brain thinking about things that we've done, where we've messed up, our failures, or things that have been done to us. And what the author of Hebrews is saying, you need to let that go. Now, for some of you in here, that maybe that's stuff that has been done to you, and you're not quite sure how to unload that. And I think I told you about in Proverbs where it talks about how the heart of a man is like deep waters. It takes a man of understanding to draw it out. There are times in life where we just need somebody else in our life that can be that third party to us and kind of help us unpack what's going on in ourselves, unpack what's going on in our heart. So I just encourage you to do that if you haven't done that. Um, and it's interesting. In Hebrews, uh, it, it, he, he talks many times about how as believers, we should be the most confident people in the world. Where is Hebrews? I'm like, can't even find it right now. There it is. I've got it. I'm like looking around here. There it is. Uh, in fact, if you look back at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, he talks about how for by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And he goes on in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through this curtain, that, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, with full assurance of faith. That's the sense of confidence. Over and over again, he's talking about confidence in life. In, chapter, in verse 35 of chapter 11, he says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has great reward. Christians, we should not feel so, condemnation, it says in Romans, should not be a part of our life. If Jesus has paid the price for our sins, then any weight that we're feeling, we can drop at the cross and we, we can walk away in freedom. And so as believers, our, we should feel most confident of people, right? Secondly, I tend to look past Jesus and believe in a moment that something will satisfy me more than, than Jesus. The reason why I sin, what I talked about last night, is because that I love it. In the moment that I sin, I am believing that that thing is going to satisfy me more than Jesus. That whatever that might be, whatever that taste is, I'm going for that because I believe it's going to satisfy me more than Jesus. That Jesus can't give me what I really need. Eve said this about the fruit. She said, because it was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and it was a desire to make one wise. There was something in that fruit that she said, I believe something about that. Even though God said, don't touch it. Don't, I mean, he didn't even say don't touch it. He said, don't eat it. 
She's saying, no, it's a delight to my eyes. It looks good. It looks like it's going to be good to taste. It looks like it's going to be desired to make me something that I'm not. And that's exactly what I do every time that I sin. Now, I know as a Christian, I probably shouldn't like the show Breaking Bad. Do we have other people that maybe like Breaking Bad that are, okay, we have a few in here that have seen Breaking Bad. If you don't know about Breaking Bad, good, you're more sanctified than I am. Okay, Breaking Bad is about this chemistry teacher, Walter White, who gets cancer, and in order to pay for the bills, he starts cooking meth. And the whole series is really about him breaking bad, becoming bad, and all the little decisions that he makes to justify why he's doing what he's doing. And for the first four seasons, all you're seeing him is make excuses after excuse after excuse that he's doing this for his family, that he's doing this to pay the bills, that he's doing this to make sure his kids are taken care of, that he's doing this to take care of the mortgage. It all becomes justified in his mind until the last episode. So if you're not there, I'm going to go ahead and spoil it for you where his wife, who has kind of been in and out of his life throughout this whole time, has been struggling with it, knows what he's doing. As he's coming to the end and everything's unraveling around him, and he starts the same old speech that he's always said. He says, you know, Skylar, the reason why I did it, and she says, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear that you say you did it for me, that you did it for the kids, that all of that is in your mind. He said, no, no, Skylar, no, I realize why I did it. I did it for me. I did it because it felt good. I did it because I felt powerful. I did it because it made me feel awake. And that's what sin does. The reason why I looked at porn was because it made me feel awake. It made me feel powerful. It wasn't because I was just this evil, lustful person. It was because I struggled with insecurity. And in those moments, that made me feel a sense of power. Any sin that we choose makes us feel alive. You know what's interesting about following Jesus? When I follow Jesus, initially I feel death. I feel death to self. I feel death to my desires. But I get life. I get freedom from addiction. I get freedom from shame. I get freedom from, 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 from the insecurities that I feel. But it's going to require death. It's going to require me letting go of whatever it is that I think is going to satisfy me more than Jesus. What sin does is sin basically says, I'm going to promise you life. In fact, in Hebrews 11, if you go back through, it talks about Moses and how Moses decided to forsake the passing pleasures of sin in Egypt. He knew that they was pleasurable. It wasn't like he could have been king. He could have been the leader. He could have had everything in front of him that Pharaoh had. He could have had all of that. But in faith, he said, that's a passing pleasure. I want to desire something more. And you know what he got? He got wandering for 40 years in the desert with whiny kids. You know when the phrase that, 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 that started it all for parents, the first time that anyone ever heard, are we there yet, was Moses. Because over and over again, all they're doing is setting up tents and, and digging graves, setting up tents and digging graves, setting up tents and digging graves with scorpions and snakes and terrible life. It's a life of endurance, but he says there's something better. And I believe that in God there's something better. I don't know what you're facing right now. I don't know what the hardship and the sin that so easily entangles you that you're feeling right now that we talked about. That The author of Hebrews is saying, listen, I know it tastes like life right now. It tastes really good. It's desirable. It makes you feel strong. It makes you feel, but it's going to give you death. That road always leads to death. Jesus, at times, will feel like death following him, but it will end in life, always. And so, you know, when I think about those directions that um, I tend to look, I tend to look, um, I, tend, I tend to look back, I tend to look past Jesus and at the sin that, that makes, that's promising life. And so we talked about what are two things that we need to do? How can we look at somebody we can't see? The author of Hebrews is saying, fix your eyes on Jesus. Well, I can't see Jesus, so how do I do that? We talked about looking intently at what we have in Jesus, what's been said about Jesus, the things that we have in Scripture, and to meditate on those and to, and to, not, and to, and to actually dig into the game film of Jesus that we have here in the Bible. And then we talked about looking at those who have gone before us. And that's really in Hebrews chapter 11. It's the heroes of the faith. It's the heroes of your life. 
I heard somebody in one of the leaders meeting today talking about who was your hero, and, and, and she said it was my dad. And I don't know if you have heroes like that in your life. Maybe your parents aren't your heroes, but I guarantee you there's probably somebody in your life that's a hero of the faith that has gone before you. You know one of the best things you can do with those folks is take them out to lunch and ask about how they navigated their 20s and how they fixed their eyes on Jesus even when everything else around them is saying don't do that. Two things will happen. Number one, they'll probably pick up the tab, which is nice, especially in your 20s. And they're going to love it because most of the older generation is sitting there going, I wonder if anybody cares. I wonder if, the, I wonder if the younger people care about what we've been through and what I've done in my life. That's my challenge to you guys this week. To how, do I, how do I really look at Jesus by looking at those who have gone before me? Take somebody out to lunch and ask them their journey of faith. Ask them about when it was hard for them to fix their eyes on Jesus. And then just take notes. Ask great questions. And you'll, you'll learn a lot. I do, it, I do it often, still do it to this day. So tonight I want to talk about two other directions that I'm tempted to look at instead of Jesus. And, then the, and, and the answer is going to be the same, eyes in the boat. Eyes in the boat. How do I get my eyes back in the boat? So another direction that I tend to look to, is, at is to the right or to the left. You know, when you're talking about running and you're talking about running a race, especially anybody sprinters, anybody grow up doing sprinting? Some spr- what, what did you run? You ran the 40, okay. What about anybody else that run hurdle? What did you run? The 100 hurdles. Anybody else run sprints? Any other sprinters in here? Uh, I was not a great track guy. I know it's hard to believe. But uh, I was a rower. I was an endurance rower. And I, I did a little bit of long distance running. But I did, I did end up getting on, a, on a, a, a track team. I did pole vault. I was not very good at it. I could never bend the pole, which is kind of the key to getting over the bar. And that was the one thing. I just wasn't strong. Again, buck 30. I just wasn't strong enough to do it. But I, they did let me run a little bit. And the one thing they told me about running is that when you're running, again, you look straight ahead. Anytime you look to the right or to the left, you're going to lose steam. And the same thing is true with us. For me, when I, th- when I think about looking to the right or to the left, what that means to me is that I'm looking at others, wondering what's going on in their race. You know, it says in Hebrews 12, one, it says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The race that's set before you, the race that's set before me. What I tend to do is I kind of tend to look over and go, you know, I, I kind of like how they're running their race. Why are they on that race? Why do they have what they have? Anybody have a, a person in your life, kind of like for me, it was a guy named Eric Schwartz. He's in high school. And I remember this guy was always just a little bit smarter, a little bit funnier, a little bit better looking, a little bit more athletic. He was kind of like Brian 2.0. You know what I'm saying? Do you have anybody in your life like that that's just a little bit, seems like they just have a little bit more than you? And I remember when I first got a car, and it wasn't really my car. It was my dad who bought the car, and, and, and he said I could drive it. Like, but it felt like my car in that moment. It was a Honda Accord. It had a hatchback. had a sunroof really kicking sunroof. Like, this sunroof was so cool. Here's how you, you would stop. In order to take it out, you would stop, pull your car over, and it had these three latches on top. And you'd undo the latches, and then you pick it out and have this really cool sleeve that you would put it in in the back of your car, and you put it in the hatchback. So it was a kicking sunroof car. I didn't have it back then. We had, you know, I didn't even have a CD player, but I was able to, I was able to hook mine into the auxiliary deal. had all that going. I thought I was really cool. Burgundy, really nice. Until Eric pulled up in his car, Toyota Prelude. His sunroof was automatic. He just pressed a button. And in that moment of seeing Eric in his car, I hated my car. I went from that was my symbol of freedom to why can't I be like him? Have you ever felt that way? Whether it's looks, whether it's money, whether it's experiences, that we run the race of faith, and one thing that sets us back is that we continually compare ourselves to somebody else. I'm an Enneagram 4. Do we have any Enneagram 4s in the house right now? Anybody like Enneagram? I don't know if you do Enneagram. I know it's kind of, what, horoscope or something. Christians probably shouldn't do Enneagram or watch Breaking Bad, so I probably won't get asked back here. But I'm a 4, and a 4 is an individualist, and at least this is what my daughter tells me because she's pretty much into Enneagram, and... Um, the thing about the four is they're the, the one deadly sin that they end up struggling with the most is envy, is jealousy. 
the green monster. Proverbs 30, 14, verse 30 says, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Envy makes the bones rot. Bones were a symbol of strength, you know? You don't want to break a bone. So what he's saying there is envy saps your strength. Because what it does is it takes your eyes off of where God has you, the gifts that he's given you, the abilities that he's given you. It takes your eyes off of and saying, basically says to God, whatever you've given me is not enough. I need that. Why don't I have this? And it's never been easier to envy than it is right now, right? I honestly, I, I have a tough time looking at social media. That's one of the things that I know that's a trigger for me. If I start looking on Facebook, if I start looking on Instagram, for me, it's a trigger. Because what it does is I immediately, it's so quick, I start seeing everybody else's experiences, the, the picture-perfect things that they have, and I start comparing what they seemingly have with what I don't have. And my mind starts looking to the left and to the right, and I've forgotten about looking at Jesus. I'm looking at everything but what he has given me and the life that he's given me. The author of Hebrews says, let us run the, with endurance the race that is set before us. You know, we envy because we think we deserve something more than we have. What do we have that we need that's more than Jesus? He's given us everything for life and good works. And when I look to the left and the right, I'm saying to Jesus, I don't believe you've given me enough. I don't believe you have done enough for me. And a lot of times, the reason why I want to look to the right or the left and I start seeing and I start comparing myself is because they're getting recognition that I'm not getting. I walk into a room and I want to know who the impressive people are and I want to try to impress them. I walk into a room and I start thinking about who can find out more about me. I walk into a room and I start thinking, who's going to cheer for me? I walk into a room and the first thought, the first person on my mind is, is me and, and maybe somebody else that I look at and go, how could I be more like them because of the recognition that they're giving? I don't know if you guys like the, the, the musical Hamilton, but there's one character that I really like. It's Aaron Burr, sir. And the reason why I like Aaron Burr is because I relate to him so well. There's a song that he sings um, where he says he wants to be in the room where it happens. I don't know if you guys remember that song, but that whole song is about his heart, and his heartbeat is he's looking at Hamilton all the time, and he's comparing himself with Hamilton, and Hamilton's accomplishing things. Hamilton is, is in the room where it happens. Hamilton's with Jefferson and Madison. He's getting the banks. Hamilton is, is on, um, he, 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 he's getting closer and closer to the presidency. Everything that, Hamilton, everything that Hamilton does, Aaron Burr compares himself to, and his whole goal isn't to do anything great in life. His whole goal is just to achieve what other people have achieved so that they can get the recognition that other people are giving. So he wants to be in the room where it happens. And that's what I find that I do in my life. It's not that I'm really fixing my eyes on Jesus. And even if I am fixing my eyes on Jesus, maybe I'm doing it because I just want to get recognition from others. Maybe I'm being good just so that I could be seen to be good. You ever feel that way? That you just want to be seen. And that was, Ham that was, that was Aaron Burr. Um, he wants to be in the room where it happens. And what the author of Hebrews says over and over and over again is that Jesus went to the room where it happened. He went to that inner sanctum. It says in Hebrews 6 that it talks about he tore down the veil. He went into the inner room, the hidden room where only God could be. And he allows us to go into that room. He allows us to go behind the veil. He allows us to go with him. That the only person that we should actually want any recognition from is God the Father. And he gives it out freely. He's already in the room where everything throughout all of history has happened. And he's like, come on in. Sit down. But when I want my best life now, it's because I'm looking at what somebody else is getting and going, you know what? That room's not enough. I also want that car. I also want that promotion. I also want that spouse. I also want those kind of kids. I also want, I also want, I also want. I am tempted to look to the right or to the left. So instead of looking to the right or the left, here's what I would challenge us to do. Focus on the race in front of you. It says that, that phrase, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 
You know, one of my favorite passages in Scripture is in John chapter 21. Do you guys remember John chapter 21? It's, at, it's uh, after Jesus has, has, has rose from the dead, and um, he's gone out. I love it because, um, you know, it had been eight days since he rose from the dead, and the disciples are gathered together. You would think that after Jesus had actually performed the greatest miracle ever, he comes out of the tomb after three days, that they would be out telling the whole world about what had happened. And what are they doing? They're fishing. They're doing what they used to do. And Jesus comes, and instead of chastising them, what does he do? He makes breakfast for them. You know, he's like, all right, guys, I know you guys are a bunch of knuckleheads, but I'm going to go ahead and make an omelet for you to show you how much I love you. And then he confronts Peter, and he does those three questions to Peter, right? Do you love me? You guys remember those questions? And that's not the part that I really like about John chapter 21. What I like about what happens is after those three questions, and he tells Peter to follow him, Peter turned, chapter, John chapter 21, verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. He's talking about John, the author of this, of this, um, of this gospel. The one who had been reclining at the table close to him and said, Lord, who is that that's going to betray you? When Peter saw John, basically, he said this to Jesus, Lord, what about him? What, what about this man? And what, what Peter does is he looks to the right or to the left, and he's like, you're telling me that I'm going to follow you. You're telling me that, that I might follow you to the point of death, because he even hints at that. Jesus even hints at that. He's giving him the end of his story. And incidentally, this is why you don't really want to know the end of your story. Because if you know the end of your story, chances are you're going to be going through some wildernesses. You're going to be going through some pain. And, to, and if, it meant, if, if following Jesus means I'm going to go through pain, I might decide I don't want it. Jesus gives Peter this image, this view that he's going to die for Jesus. And Peter's first response, what about him? Is he going to die for you or is this just going to be me? What about, is he on my race? Is he got to go through what I got to go through? And I like what Jesus has to say. He says, Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. The race that is set before us. Your race is going to be different than mine. Your gifts and abilities are going to be different than mine. It says in Ephesians, Paul says that you are his workmanship. And that word workmanship means poem. You are God's poem. And he has written things about you. He is, I don't, have anybody ever written a poem before? Like, remember writing, um, like, haikus and stuff like that? Just how much of a pain they were? Because you've got to, like, be so particular and precise about how many words. And if you ever had to do a sonnet, like, for Shakespeare, and you realize how tough that was to do iambic pentameter. You know what I'm talking about? Do you guys remember all of that from back in the day? Iambic pentameter. I went way back. Okay? My wife, who's an English teacher, would have been so impressed with me right now. And I remember, like, writing those things was so difficult. What God is saying is, listen, I have stitched you in your mother's womb. I have made everything about you, your hair color, your eye color, the things that you are good at and the things that you struggle with. God knew all of that, and he's like, now run. And here's what I do. But God, why don't I have that gift? Why aren't my kids the A students that end up, you know, that everybody writes about on their Christmas cards that make me sick, that are going to go to astronaut college. You know, that, you know, those kids, that's not my kids. And I want those kids. Jesus is like, that's not your race. It's not your race. Something I've been practicing as I've been scrolling and I see those things on Facebook that trigger me, or I just could be thinking about anybody in my life is I just start saying the phrase, that's not my race. It's not my race. God's got me on a different race. He's got you on a different race. And he doesn't waste your pain. He doesn't waste your struggles. He doesn't waste, he's not, willing, he's not wanting to waste anything about you. He's got you on a race for his glory. And so sometimes we just need to remind ourselves, it's not my race. When I see some family rafting down the Colorado River and think that I haven't done that with my kids, it's not my race. When I see someone excelling in the field that I'm in, it's not my race. Pray and ask God, what's your race? Now, some of you don't like the race that you're on, the family that you're raised in, the skills that you have, the education you have or you don't have. And you can be a victim with that and start going, well, I didn't get that person's race. Or you can actually ask God for a vision. 
okay, God, you've put me on this track and you're asking me to run with everything that I've got. Give me a vision for this. Jesus said this in Hebrews, back in Hebrews chapter 12, right after we talk about the race that is set before him. If you think about it, think about, it, think about Jesus. Do you think that he really enjoyed the race that he was on? You think about the race that God the Father asked him to run. And it says, there, it says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You want to be on that race? I don't. Despise the shame, the shame of alienation, the shame of longing, the shame of putting the weight of the world's sin on your shoulders, the shame of degradation, of being hung on a cross in front of your people, the very people that were praising him and said, this is, the, this is, this is king, this is the king, of the, this is our king, this is our Messiah on Palm Sunday were the ones that were saying, kill him, crucify him. The shame of betrayal, all of that, that was Jesus' race. And Jesus said, this is the race the Father has put on me. And for the, for the joy of knowing what's to come, I'm going to endure it. And I know that there's some of you that are in races right now that aren't fun, that hurt. Whether it's stuff from your past or whether it's stuff that you're dealing with right now. And I just want you to know this. God's not done with your race yet. And you don't know how that's going to be used in somebody's life. You don't know how... I don't know how my struggle with jealousy and envy is going to be useful in somebody else's life. I don't know how the fact that the, the woman that showed me that porn film when I was 11 years old, I had no idea that that seed that was planted would eventually help me and grow me through a lot of pain, but get me to the place where I can now relate to people that have gone through that. And it would give me a fire on my belly to help people to realize there's something better for you than just sex that intimacy is worth waiting for, that God created you for that. The race that you're on is gonna be worth it. So whatever you're feeling about your race right now, about the fact that you wish you were on somebody else's or you wish you were doing something different, I mean, just, just trust that the God that has you on this, that he set before this, that it's for a purpose, it's for a plan. Jesus ran that race with joy. And I bet some of you are thinking, Brian, how do I figure out the race that I'm on? Uh, listen, we have all that we need. Micah 6, 8 says this. It says that what does God require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. That we fix our eyes on God, we focus on him, and we focus on the people that are around us and bring justice and mercy to them. Matthew 22, 37 through 39, Jesus gives the two greatest commandments. What was the first commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the second commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. If you don't know what your race is, that's plenty. That's enough that I'm going to run and I'm going to look as hard as I can at Jesus, grow as, as close as I can to him, and I'm going to look for those around me. How do I help them run better towards Jesus? I'm going to look for those that are running away from Jesus, and I'm going to run towards them. That's enough. Some of you will get specific calling. Some of you will get a book, a vision, something inside of you that wants to come out. Great, run on that race. If you don't have that race right now, that's okay. Don't sit around going, well, I'm gonna wait till God gives me a race. I don't know what my race is, Brian. I, he hadn't answered my prayers. Yes, he has. You got somebody around you that doesn't know Jesus? That's your race. I've got a wife to love. I've got kids to raise to be just like Jesus. That's my race. Whatever else comes with it, that's just gravy. Tonight, this is my race. Some of you are leading a Bible study. Some of you are leaders here in, this, in the harbor. That's your race. Run it with gusto. Run it with joy. Run it hard and fast. And you know who helps me keep my eyes on Jesus when I'm running this race? Are those people that are around me. Those people that are the others, the friends that are in my life. Because the Christian life Becoming a Christian is a, is a personal decision, but it's not a private one. And I don't run this race well without others. Someone once said, if you want to run fast, go alone. If you want to run far, go with others. If you want to run fast, you can go alone. But if you want to go far, go with others. And this is a race of endurance. I don't know if you've ever heard of the name uh, Diana Nyad. But she was a woman who decided that she wanted to have this certain kind of a race. She decided that I want to set the world record for swimming. 
open water swimming. Now, up until this point in time, I think we got a picture of Diana and I had. Up until this point in time, when she decided to do this race, the, the longest distance anybody had ever swam out in the ocean was 63 miles. Why somebody wanted to do this, I don't know. But Diana's like, I want an even number. I want to go 100 miles, so I'm going to do this thing. And so she sets out to run, to swim 100 miles. But I want you to listen to what it took for her to be able to, to go on this race from Havana all the way to Key West. First of all, she had to have NASA experts on her boat with her that understood the tides and understood the winds to help her decide which way she was going to be going on this race. She had psychologists in the boats that would help her battle anxiety as she's going through this because she's got to go through it straight. She can't hold on to the boat. There's all these rules that happen in order to set these kind of records, right? She had to have nutrition experts to stay hydrated and fed. She lost 29 pounds on this trip. So if you're looking for a great diet, I got to chop 20 somehow. Why don't you just swim 100 miles? You'll get there. Promise you. She had to have divers in the boat. Why would she have to have divers? Nope, not to drown. Not to keep her afloat. They could easily catch her. They had to have divers to keep the sharks away from her. At that point in time, I'm out. Like, if I've got to have divers in the boat to keep sharks away from me, I don't need to be on that race. That's not the race that God has set before me. That's clear. I'm fine. I don't have to set that record. At the end of the day, Diane and I had swam 103 miles, okay? I don't know why she couldn't stop at 100, but I guess land was still another three miles away, so she went ahead and, and got to land 103 miles. Her name's in the record book, but it took 51 people for her to make that trip. You're not going to make the trip of life without a group of people around you that just remind you, you know, you don't need all that stuff that you're looking to the right or left about. James 5.16 says, confess your sins not to God, to one another so that you can be healed. And any battle that I've gone through, any sin that I've wanted instead of Jesus, any time that I'm feeling like I'm looking to the right or left and I'm battling with jealousy, I call my friends to go help me. So that, I can be, so that I can be healed. Uh, second direction that I often tend to look down is down. Second direction I want to talk about tonight is looking down. I'll go through this one a little bit quicker than the last one. You know, anytime I look back, I look past, I look to the left or my right, my momentum in the race of life slows down. But nothing quite stops my momentum like looking down. What do I mean by looking down? Maybe you've even seen this in athletics. I think I got a picture of Michael Jordan. I showed him last week. You know athletes are tired uh, when they're holding their shorts and they're looking down. Like they're exhausted. And they're clearly exhausted. And they're, they're like, I'm, I'm, I'm almost out. I'm depleted, right? When I'm talking about looking down, what do I mean? It's when I'm feeling shame over something that I've done or something that I've become. Now, listen, shame is not always bad. Shame is that thing that basically says there's something that's wrong that I've done that I need to repent of. I remember my parents had this change jar that was up in their closet. I was like eight or nine years old, and uh, there was a 7-Eleven that was real close to my house, and I would love to go to 7-Eleven to get a big gulp. I don't know if you guys, if they still have, do they even still have big gulps? And then I, and I would get sprees. That was my favorite candy growing up was those hard sprees. I love those things. But I didn't have a lot of cash coming in as a, as a nine-year-old kid. I just didn't have a good job. There wasn't a lot of benefits. There wasn't anything that was coming my way. And so I did see this change jar. And so what I would do is I would get up in the change. I would actually make sure my mom was out. She was outside or doing something. My dad was at work. And I would put a, I'd, I'd have to put a stool right there, get up, grab the change jar, come down. And I knew as a kid that I'm smart, it's a lot easier to pay for these things, big goals, with quarters than it is with pennies. And so I would take the quarters out of the top because my dad would empty his change every day and put it in and would build it. Anybody whose parents have a change jar growing up and all that? So I would grab all the quarters, but I knew it's like, well, he's going to notice. So I would take the quarters from the bottom and start putting them up on the top. But after you do this a couple times, eventually the silver starts draining away. My parents are smart people. And I remember as we're sitting in my carport uh, and we're having dinner outside, my dad just grilled uh, burgers, much like Jesus, you know, making breakfast. My dad's grilling burgers. He knows he's about to have this conversation. I remember there were storm clouds coming in. Like it was a very, um, like a, just a crazy night for me. And I remember him looking at me and going, Brian, do you know anything about the change jar? And I just remember looking down. You guys remember those moments as parents? It's okay to look down 
when you're feeling that shame because it gives you a chance for your dad or for God himself to say, no, I need you to look up at me now because I've forgiven you for that. I need you to repent, but I'm going to forgive you for it. And that's exactly what happened with my dad. I, we repented. I was able to go on, go and sin no more. I didn't go back to the change jar. When we feel shame, it's okay sometimes because it's God's way of getting us to repent and turn back to him. Repentance is just doing a 180. I was going this way, chasing something other than Jesus. Now I'm going to repent and come back to God and look up at God. But there's another kind of shame, an unhealthy kind of shame that has plagued me a lot of my life. And that is looking down and saying that I'm just not worth it. That I, I'm not fearfully and wonderfully made that there's something wrong about me. And there's a lot of reasons that many of us have felt this, whether it's because of the way we think that we look, whether it's because of the mistakes that we've made. But I've spent way too much time, way too much real estate in my brain, thinking about all the ways that I'm just a terrible person, that I'm just not worth it. I remember uh, reading... Somebody who, uh, David Paulison, who talks about these 2 a.m. thoughts that you get. Anybody have these 2 a.m. thoughts that wake you up at night? It seems like you never have good thoughts at 2 a.m. And you're just rehearsing in your brain your mistakes, your failures, why you don't think you're good enough, why you don't think you measure up, what you wish you had, the Eric's that are in your life that you wish you were more like. And David Paulison said, that's what happens when barbarians start rioting in the streets of my mind. That's what these thoughts are like. When I look down, I let my thoughts just run amok, and I never check them. Jared Mulligan said this in um, the uh, Relief from the Burden of Introspection. He says, you know, no one, no one thinks to themselves, when I grow up, I want to think about myself in ways that make me miserable. Like, when you ask a kid that, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't know, but I hope I grow up and think of myself as, as being miserable. No one thinks that, and yet we struggle with it, don't we? We deal with it. We look down. For many of us, if that goes unchecked, it can lead to depression. And I remember sitting in a, uh, I was in Colorado in the summer one time, and incidentally, if a pastor says he's in Colorado, and it's, I mean, it wasn't in the summer, it was like in May or April, and if a pastor goes to Colorado in May or April, you're not skiing and it's not summer. The only reason why they're there is to get psychotherapy. That's the reason why they go. And I was out there, and I remember sitting with a counselor, and I remember him about halfway through the week. It was through a one-week intensive. And I remember him, I remember looking at him and saying, listen, if all this comes down to is that I don't really feel like God loves me, and I got issues with my dad, I want my money back. And he's like, Brian, I'll just tell you, that's the issue with most people. You really don't feel like God loves you. And you got some issue in your past from your family of origin that you haven't worked out. And so when we see this in scripture and when you're looking down and we're thinking about that, what we're missing out on, on not looking at Jesus is that we're not being reminded of the fact that we're truly loved. That God has designed you. He's de he not only created you, but he's watched you your whole life. Not only that, he gave his best for us. It says in, in Hebrews chapter 12, Verse 2, it says, looking at Jesus, why? The founder and perfecter, he's our forerunner of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And I like this phrase, despising the shame. He gave us a model for this. That word despising the shame, uh, it, it means to look down on, to scorn, to thought to be bad or without value. Uh, it, means to, it means to disparage it, to regard it in an unseemly fashion. And I like this definition, to not be concerned about and to not fear. What is Jesus doing? He's looking down on the very idea of being looked down upon. He's like, I'm despising the shame I should feel. Because I'm up on a cross where in Exodus, it talks about how cursed is the man who dies on a tree. If you're a Jew, that was the worst thing that could happen to you. He was alienated from his family. They thought he was insane. His disciples all left him. God, he said to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Left by his father, all of that shame he should have felt, he's like, I'm gonna look down on that shame because why? I'm thinking with the end in mind. There is a joy that's coming. This is gonna end. There's something better. 
And then it says he sat down. He sat down and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The reason why we don't have to look down is because Jesus has already sat down. And what that symbolizes to us should mean something. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Um, this, this phrase, when you see seated at the right hand of the Father, it's, it's like a hyperlink on the Internet. And the author of Hebrews has said three times, in fact, I think I've got it up here uh, on the slide, Throughout, throughout all of Hebrews, he's building this argument about what happens with this right hand. That um, It goes back to Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And, and it talks about Jesus that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That when he, and when he did all of this, I, I don't know if you've ever wondered what happens after the resurrection. What happens after the ascension when Jesus goes up? What is he doing up in heaven? What's he doing spending all of his time? Well, he's seated at the right hand. What's he doing at the right hand of God? If you go through scripture, you find that he's doing three things. He's advocating for us at the right hand. That while he's sitting at the right hand, he's talking to the Father. Advocating is a fancy word that means I'm cheering for you that I see the, all of these children that we've created, God, and you're doing something great in them. That I know that they've had a, a past, I know that they've had, they've had failures, I know that they have weaknesses, they have gaps, and they could choose to dwell on them, but I just want you to know, God, I know that you're gonna do something in them. He advocates for us at the right hand. Also, scripture says he reminds the accuser of who and whose we are. That there's an enemy that is up, up, that will come to heaven and will talk to us, talk to God about us, about why we aren't worthy of being saved, of why we're terrible people. And that accuser also whispers to us. And every time that he does, Jesus is at the right hand, seated, going, that's a lie. You're his workmanship. He's knitted and, 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 and put you together in, in, your, in your mother's womb. He has saved you for a purpose. He's given everything his whole life. He, doesn't, he, doesn't, he didn't die on the cross because we were worthless people. He died on the cross because he wanted to redeem us. He purchased us. He found great value in us. So he advocates, he reminds the accuser, and he intercedes for us, which is kind of a crazy thought. Did you know that Jesus is praying for you? In the midst of me looking down, in the midst of me in my 2 a.m. rehearsing all those thoughts in my brain that go like crazy, Jesus is interceding for me. The reason why I look to Jesus is to remind myself that he's doing things on my behalf. He's advocating. He's going against the accuser, and he's actually praying for me. We look to Jesus to remind us, a physical reminder, that he's not silent. He's cheering for you. I don't think we think of Jesus like that. When I have those, when I'm looking down and I'm only thinking about myself, and incidentally, what the world will tell you, the cure for looking down is to think more highly of yourself. You just need to believe in your heart that you're worth it. The reason why you're struggling is because you don't see the value that you have. C.S. Lewis said that humility is not thinking of yourself, not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And what it means is, I don't, the cure for me not believing that I'm valuable is not to try to think and fabricate more thoughts about myself. It's to look up to God. Where does my help come from? It comes from heaven. It comes from him. It comes from what he said about me, not what I say about myself. That's what gets me in trouble is all the things that I say about myself. Gosh, I wish I could not listen to myself. That's the problem that I have in my life is that I don't question my thoughts. We just think that my thoughts are real because I have them. The truth of the matter is we got to put them up against what God says about us. That's what's most important. I'll close with this. I had a friend of mine, um, and he would do this all the time. Anytime his daughter would come home, it didn't matter what he was doing. If he was at the house and he saw her pull up in her car or if she came home running home from uh, playing out with the kids at the, on the cul-de-sac, he would stop what he's doing, yard work, in the house, whatever he's doing, and he would run out and he would hug her. Now, when she got to be in college, she would bring friends home. 
and she would pull up into the driveway, and he would be sitting in his study, and he would run out, and he would give her a big bear hug and go, oh, honey, I've been, I've been missing you. I'm so glad you're home. And she's like, Dad, stop. Dad, stop. Seriously. Like, she's got her friends there, all that. But what do you think she's doing inside? Don't stop. Don't stop. Because, see, that dad wanted to have a physical reminder that she was valuable to him and that whatever he was doing, he would stop to remind her that she's his daughter. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, and we look at him as a reminder that you're valuable. You're worth dying for. You're worth dying for in the worst of your sins. The worst of your sins didn't keep Jesus from the cross. And the best of you, who you are couldn't save you. So Jesus went to the cross for you and me. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's like, God, I love these guys. These people in the harbor, I love them. Satan, you're going to try to whisper stuff in their ear. It's not true. Brian, you're going to tell yourself about things. I do plenty of accusing on my own. And I want you to remember that I'm advocating for you. I'm praying for you. So as we run the race of life, I just pray we don't keep getting distracted. Let's get our eyes back in the boat and remind ourselves of who Jesus is and what he thinks about each and every one of us and what he wants to do for you. I don't know what race that God has you on, but I can't wait to see what he's going to do through each and every one of you. Let me pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. Uh, Lord, if there's anything I've said that's not from you, I pray that these fine folks would forget it immediately as they walk out. But if there's been something that's been said that comes from your word, that sticks, I pray, Lord, they wouldn't let it leave their brain, that the enemy wouldn't come and try to snatch that away from their heart. But they'd meditate on it, that it would grow, that that seed would of truth would be planted and would bear fruit. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Thank you for being the forerunner that went ahead of us and a model that we can look to that gives us a reason to keep running after you. In your name, amen. Thanks so much for spending time with us. If you'd like to know more about The Harbor, please follow us on Instagram at wearetheharbor. Also, if you need prayer, feel free to send us a DM. Otherwise, tune in next time.